Blog Talk Radio. Radio College Football Analyst Joe Lisi and former Georgia Bulldogs wide receiver Corey Allen. Right, let's rock and roll. Yeah. up. Here's Joe and Corey. Ah, uh, it's great to be back on the air. We're still in the long off season of college football, but there's no better place to be than at Go for the Two here. We talk college football every single show. Doesn't get better than this. I want to welcome in my co-host. Big play receiver from the University of Georgia, Corey Allen. Corey, it's been a while, but it feels great to be talking about college football. Joe, 2016 is just around the corner. That season is uh, chomping at the bit. We're all excited about the possibilities. I'm no different than you are. Uh, We've got a lot to talk about, a lot of guys positioning themselves to uh, take that next step and be in the forefront of the discussion you know, when it all hits the fan. So I'm excited. I know there are a lot of players gearing up for the season, a lot of coaches really trying to get their game plans in place. You know, a lot of guys want to come back doing better than they did the year before. That's always, you know, as a student athlete, that's what we're looking at. What did I do last year and how can I be better? But the off season is the most important time to take advantage of that. So strength and conditioning, uh, getting accustomed to the playbook, getting to know your coaching staff, and getting ready for that first opponent. You've got a lot in front of you right now as a young man. So these college football players, everyone's played as full, including the coaches and the staff and all the academic people involved. So a great time to be involved. And the season's just around the corner. It is. And we have broken down some big games uh, already on this show. I mean, we, we spoke about USC and Alabama. We spoke about Georgia and North Carolina, Auburn and Clemson. Uh, The list goes on and on, LSU and Wisconsin. We touched on Notre Dame and Texas in last week's show. Uh, I mean, week number one does not get better than this if you're a college football fan. There's about 10 or 11 games on tap, and and it really just kicks off the season later in week number two when you, you have an unbelievable matchup, possibly the largest crowd in week number two in Bristol, Tennessee, to see the Virginia Tech Hokies take on the Tennessee Volunteers in Bristol Raceway over there, which will be 160,000-plus for a college football game. Did you ever think that you would be able to witness a venue such as the venue that we're going to witness September 10th out in Bristol, Tennessee? I'll tell you what, that's that, that's more people than I can even imagine. I mean, some stadiums, some high-end universities won't get half of that at a game. There are a lot of teams that won't see 80,000, 75,000 people uh, to sit around and watch them play four quarters of football. So to acknowledge what's going on between Virginia Tech and Tennessee, you know, playing in a stadium that is accustomed to holding those NASCAR fans, that's going to be a great environment, not just for the players, but for those fans involved. Everyone can get to the game. Hopefully the tickets are priced just right so we can squeeze in and and pack the place out because that's going to be season telltale matchup, Joe. That's going to be one of the deciding factors early. Just as I look at the college football landscape 
I think a lot of coaches and universities in general are looking at the schedule because strength of schedule is such an important part of making what's uh, everyone's ultimate goal, which is getting into that college football playoff. So right now you don't have a lot of cupcakes on your schedule. Uh, most teams, uh, most of the big-time schools cannot afford more than one cupcake or a layup game, you know, uh, because of their division, their their conference is going to be at stake. And it's always a good idea to, you know, bolster that schedule when you have the opportunity because it not only gives you a chance to move up in the rankings if you win against a formidable opponent, but it also prepares you for conference play when you play against teams outside of your league that are going to be tough uh, tough matchups. So I think that matchup uh, with uh, Tennessee and Virginia Tech is just a testament to teams really looking forward to the end of the year, trying to position themselves not only for conference play, but to potentially make that college football playoff. When you look at the landscape, and, and you look at a Tennessee team last year in 2015 that really lost four ball games by a total of 20 points overall. I mean, that was it. That, that was separating an unblemished season for the Tennessee Volunteers, and it really, that game against Oklahoma where they had Oklahoma on the ropes, they, they led that ball game 17-3 to in the fourth quarter, and failed to really close out the door to Baker Mayfield and Sterling Shepard for the Oklahoma Sooners. And really, that victory catapulted Oklahoma to the season that they had making the college football playoff last year. But you look at this team overall, led by Butch Jones, and they have a dynamic quarterback in Joshua Dobbs that really is the team to beat by most experts in the SEC East. The one thing when I look at Tennessee overall – by Josh Dobbs has has been the inability to step up in big games, especially on the road. You haven't seen that marquee victory by Josh Dobbs as a quarterback to take his team to the next level from a from a quarterback's perspective. And teams are, in terms of carrying the team on his shoulders, he had an opportunity to do that. They had a lead in the fourth quarter against top-ranked Alabama last year in Tuscaloosa, but failed to close that victory out and wound up losing that ball game. But that's what I see out of Tennessee. There's a lot of pressure on this team now in the 2016 season to really step up and make some noise. This game, September 10th against Virginia Tech, is going to be a playoff atmosphere. You can't get a bigger crowd than 160,000 plus. <laughs> 160,000. I'm still trying to wrap my head around that number, Joe. I mean, that's just a crazy amount of people looking to watch a, a bunch of young men play college football. But as far as Tennessee is concerned in general, they really have to look at what happened in 2015 as a catalyst or as, as maybe uh, that's going to have to be what their learning curve is based on. When you look at what Josh Dobbs is facing 2015 versus 2016, you I mean, you've made it clear they lost a lot of close matchups against some great teams, games that they really could have and should have won, speaking specifically about Oklahoma and Alabama, just not having the composure to stay strong late in the game and, and, and play at your highest level and not holding on to a lead when you carry it into the fourth quarter and a strong opponent is trying to get that lead back. I think – uh, Tennessee is in a position right now because Josh Dobbs is a little a little bit more seasoned. Uh, that defense is going to come back healthier and stronger. I think they're in prime position. I don't like the balls at all, Joe. Please, let's let that be known. But I have to be honest, when I evaluate what they have in front of them, 
they have all the tools. They have a strong signal caller and a strong defense, and they also gained so much experience, even though it was in losses, even though it came when they lost those games against those great opponents. I think they learned a lot going through that experience. I think Tennessee is a much better team because of it, and I think they're really going to have to focus their efforts on being uh, being a full-quarter unit because they have all the tools. But, uh, again, uh, the game against Virginia Tech, just like last year against Oklahoma, that's going to be a catalyst as they dictate how this season is going to play out. Great points that you make up. And, and really, we've, we talked about Oklahoma and Alabama, but that – that loss in Gainesville last year as well, where they held a double-digit lead over Will Greer and the Florida Gators, and lo and behold, they lost the lead. They had an opportunity to win it with a long field goal in the swamp and couldn't pull through. I think that was really a critical uh, game-changing victory in terms of for the Gators as well. But that victory, if they were able to pull that out, you never know. I mean, if they could have ran the table at that point, Tennessee might have been a team to be mentioned for the playoff, but still a young, inexperienced team. But they have the pieces in place offensively. They have one of the most dynamic running backs in Jalen Hurd. The question I want to ask you from their quarterback in Josh Dobbs is, in your opinion, Corey, do you feel he's an elite SEC quarterback in terms of is he a good quarterback or can he be a great quarterback in the SEC this year? Well, to be honest, that, the beauty of it is I don't know, and no one in the country really knows. I mean, right now, if you ask me my personal opinion about Josh Dobbs, he's got a long way to go. He has a lot to show as far as his pocket presence. I know that he he does a great job converting third downs when he uses his legs and he's under pressure, but can he stand back there and deliver the ball when he's under that pressure? Now, I think the ceiling for Josh Dobbs right now, if you just evaluate what he's done thus far, you know, and his his best bet is to aim at a guy like a Dak Prescott, a guy who's going to be a heady quarterback who won't make mistakes, who uses his legs extremely efficiently, but who can also convert third down using his arm. What Dobbs has to do is to rely on those playmakers he's got on the perimeter because he has a bell cow in Jalen Hurd that's going to really loosen up the secondary a little bit because they're going to have to focus their efforts in the box. So he'll have some open lanes to throw on third down, especially on third short, and he's going to have to convert that. I think he has the tools, but I, I still believe he's got a lot to prove. He's a young man. Uh, he's played the position for about a year now at Tennessee, so he should he should be seasoned. I think that's the biggest thing that Tennessee has in their favor. He should not be afraid of the spotlight. This is a guy who's been on the big stage, even though he's lost those big games. Uh, he's also played in some big games and won some big games against some SEC division rivals. So I think this is his chance to really separate himself as a quarterback in the conference. He's well uh, well regarded and by far easily the most seasoned guy, if you ask me. So I feel like he has a strong a strong opportunity to really show his worth, but he really he's going to have to show it on Saturday because last year is not enough uh, for anybody, especially if, a, if you're a Tennessee fan. This is the perfect landscape to kick kickstart their season. I mean, it doesn't get better than this in terms of fans, in terms of national exposure, and a big-time program in the Virginia Tech Hokies, no longer Frank Beamer's team. It is now Justin Fuente's team, the former Memphis head coach that takes over for Virginia Tech. Defensive coordinator Bud Foster is there. He was retained by Fuente and the staff, and from what I've heard, they're getting along great, and that's what you want to see out of a head coach 
defensive coordinator, especially a guy in terms of tenure by uh, Bud Foster to be able to, to gel with the new coaching staff. And keep in mind, I'm sure Fuente needs Bud Foster as well to give him some, you know, understanding about Virginia Tech football under Frank Beamer. I understand he's the new guy there, but there is tradition in Blacksburg that you want to keep. And what better way than to keep a great defensive coordinator in Bud Foster? Exactly. I agree, Joe. I when think you... Bud Foster is going to be a catalyst. So I just wanted to chime in real quick. I think Bud's going to be a big, a big improvement as far as helping uh, the transition for Justin Quintez. He's got a, he's got the defense. He understands the, the environment, and that can only be an asset when you look at what Justin Quintez has in front of him with those Hokies. I want to switch switch gears right now. I know we we spoke about Georgia and North Carolina, but I do know that you did attend the G-Day a few weeks ago in attendance. I mean, a record crowd. They had, if I'm not mistaken, 91,000-plus for the spring day. You had an opportunity to look at Jacob Eason up close and personal. Before we get to that, though, Corey, have you been a part of – you know, G days with Mark Rick, where there was this much emotion and intensity. I mean, Ludacris was there. I mean, the fans were out and about to see your former teammate, Kirby Smart. Give me some insight about that landscape in Athens, in Sanford Stadium, a few weeks ago, and what you were able to witness from your alma mater, the Georgia Bulldogs. <laughs> I tell you, Joe, uh, that G-Day experience that we just had uh, for spring football was like no other. As a former player, as an alum, as a guy who not just uh, played between the hedges but enjoyed my time as a student there, even as a, as a fan going to G-Day before I had the opportunity to play between the hedges, I've never seen anything like what we saw this past uh, spring day. Uh, G-Day, they said 93K was the goal, but – Joe, I feel like we had almost 95,000 in that stadium. Uh, the experience was like no other. It was a great swell of emotion and support for Coach Smart, not only because he's a hometown guy, but he, uh, we really have a lot of faith in his methods and what he's been doing, uh, not just in Athens, but you know, even in his time away from the University of Georgia. So he definitely has the support of Bulldog Nation. It was much different from any other spring game I've ever witnessed primarily because not not only did we have 93 to 95,000 people in the building, but there were no opponents, Joe. So it was a very welcoming environment. It was a great opportunity for the young men playing between the hedges now that get a chance to compete under Coach Smart. It was a great chance for them to feel a little bit of that pressure with all those eyes watching them. But the support, I have to go back to the support that Coach, Coach Smart is receiving um, I've never seen anything like it. The alumni have stepped up in a large way, and this isn't just the football team. You know, these are all sports all across the board, baseball, volleyball, you know, soccer team. They're all showing up, men and women's sports. The gymnastics teams was out. Uh, they were out in full force supporting uh, this new regime under Coach Smart. So it's been a great transition. I will not – I won't take a shot at Mark Rick. Mark Rick didn't see anything like this, but neither did Jim Donnan, neither did Ray Goff, neither did – Vince Dooley, no one has seen the momentum uh, that Kirby Smart has been able to build, and I, it has to be uh, in part because of the timing. Not only is he a young coach on the cusp of some success, you know, really looking to build his own name, but, you know, we do have social media that's been a big asset, and I know Kirby enjoys using that as a tool. Right now he, he's done a great job to build momentum to this point, 
and he's also continuing to use social media for events down the line. So he's got everything that he would need uh, from a support standpoint. I feel like Bulldog Nation, the alumni, and everyone that's involved really is behind Kirby Smart. Uh, No one really taking a shot at Mark Rick, but really looking to move forward because the next regime is in place and they have a good plan up there. So I was excited to participate. Not even speaking about the actual on-the-field play, you know, the momentum in Athens is really moving strong. Coach Smart has uh, the direction and the support that he needs, so we really want to see the results to come to fruition. So great times in Athens, Joe, but, you know, it's early, and nothing really matters until we reach the fall on a Saturday. You're absolutely right, Corey. The the question I want to pose to you, and I have brought this up in in last week's show um, when I gave a breakdown about Georgia, North Carolina, and I'll give some key statistics to get your take on them as well. But when you look at this year for Kirby Smart, I feel like it's it's a soft schedule, number one. They don't play Alabama. Uh, They play Tennessee, play Florida. They play Georgia Tech, a rivalry game. But outside of that, every game is winnable, including those two that I mentioned, Florida and Tennessee. I mean, um, realistically, Georgia could possibly go undefeated, but the odds are stacked against them, especially with a first-year head coach who has no prior head coaching experience in Kirby Smart. So my question that I want to pose to you is, I feel like Kirby Smart has this year, and we know that. I I mean, the the pressure's on. He knows the expectations, and and it's a national championship or a bust. But from the quarterback position, you got a guy like Grayson Lambert in camp. You have a guy in Bryce Ramsey in camp, and you have your big stud five-star recruit in Jacob Easton who was brought in and turned heads at the G-Day. Now, Grayson Lambert, from what I've heard and what I've seen, has the inside track. This is an offense last year in Georgia that averaged 26 points per game. It was their lowest since prior to the 2008 season. They struggled offensively from a passing game perspective. They averaged about 185 yards through the air. But in those three losses to Alabama, Florida, and Tennessee, they completed 41 of 98 passes, 41% completion percentage, had two touchdowns through the air and seven interceptions. Couple the fact that this was an offense under Brian Schottheimer that only converted 31% on third downs. Compared to Mike Bobo's tenure there over the last three years, in 2014, the Bulldogs averaged they they converted 49% on third down. In 2013, it was 41%. And in 2012, it was 47%. So the question I want to ask you is, does Kirby Smart have anywhere to go at the quarterback position but Jacob Eason? And let me tell you why. Because if he goes with Grayson Lambert or, or Bryce Ramsey, and let's say they go 10-2, and 10-3 overall, they win their bowl game, isn't that what Mark Rick did? I mean, isn't that what was expected from Mark Rick year in and year out? So then when in year number two then, when expectation and the bar is set at a national championship, how can you then go to your redshirt freshman or sophomore, depending on what they do with Jacob Eason, and then force him into the fire without any game experience? To me, I think they have to start Jacob Eason right from the get-go 
to get his feet wet because there is no tomorrow in year number two. Am I off with that statement? I'll tell you what, starting with the very last thing you said, you are nowhere near off as far as uh, he has to get some experience in right now. Year number two is not going to be where we want to start this thing off. I think realistically, uh, the Georgia staff understands what they have. When I when I consider the three guys we've got at quarterback, Joe, I've got I've got a word beside each name. I've got you know we have Lambert coming. He's the under, he understands what he's getting into. He's played the most games when you look at his time in the ACC and his time last year with the Dogs, and and, and he should be the most prepared guy to handle you know the atmosphere, whether it be at home or on the road. When you look at what. Ramsey brings to the table, he's probably the most athletic guy we've got under center. Uh, not only does he have that rocket arm, but he's, a, he's, a, he's a, a very formidable runner. He can convert on third down. He can do a lot more with his legs than the other two guys, and that's something that he brings to the table. It's an intangible that the other two guys don't have. And then at the same time, when I look at what this young kid, Jacob Eason, coming out of uh, the West Coast at, in Washington, and, you know, he's supposed to be at his prime a couple of weeks ago, but he was practicing football with Division One athletes. You know, you just stand beside a guy like that and look at him, and the first thing popped in my head, Joe, the kid's a phenom. This, this guy is obviously ready. He has all of the tools. There's nothing missing except for that experience. So, uh, realistically, to answer the question, I'm sure Coach Smart understands what he has because it's very clear when you see these guys throw the ball around who's the most talented kid. The problem comes in is what can we trust him with? We can't trust him with the key to the entirety of the offense just yet. We don't even know if we can trust him uh, to perform under pressure, but we got to find out in 2016. This isn't something that we can drag on for six, eight months leading up into the next season. We need to find out right now because there is a lot on the line. Kirby, uh, is a smart man, and he knows he doesn't have a five-, six-year plan. Uh, the University of Georgia and Bulldog Nation would love to see a turnaround here in the next three years, and that means we need to be competing for the SEC and have a spot in the dome. So when you look at our schedule, Joe, initially you mentioned the schedule that we have right now. Realistically, this is the easiest schedule Kirby's going to have as a Bulldog head coach. Right now he's got every opportunity to take the East. It's right in front of him. Florida doesn't have a quarterback that's right now. They have that strong defense, but, hey, they don't have quarterback play. They're in the same spot we're in. Tennessee, this is the strongest they've been in almost 10 years. So, really, they can be knocked off. We just have to play perfect football on that day. And Alabama is Alabama, so we just have to face them whenever that time comes. And I know Kirby understands that dynamic as well. But as far as the quarterback position in itself, Joe, I don't feel like we need to start Jacob Eason under center for the Bulldogs for the very first snap in the very first game, but it, it shouldn't be too long after that. I'll be honest with you. If he comes out in the third quarter of the North Carolina game and, and, and that's the beginning of his career, I wouldn't be upset. If he comes out and he starts in week two or week three and that's the beginning of his career, I still wouldn't be upset. What really is going to dictate how he plays or how soon he plays is going to be the performance of the young guys in front of him. Uh, Lambert's going to have to control that atmosphere and rely on that defense, hand the ball off to whomever he can get it to and convert on third down, or he won't be in there regardless because the one thing that will get Jacob Eason on the field quicker than anything else is if he loses a game. If either one of these guys loses the North Carolina game, Joe, I look for Jacob Eason to be starting week two. And that's just the bottom line. If we're going to struggle, it has to be with Eason. We don't have time to waste with anybody else. 
Right now we're looking to build a tradition and get this thing going in the right direction. The tools are in place, but the only thing he doesn't have is the experience, and that's what 2015, excuse me, 2016 is going to be all about. So Kirby Smart being a young man that's very intelligent, I know he knows that. Coach Chaney, as an offensive coordinator, knows he's got a kid that can do everything, but he has to teach him up and coach him up. So I feel like the coaching staff understands what they've got in front of them. They're going to take advantage of it. They don't want to uh, lose what they have in Jacob Eason, but at the same time, if you have some assets in Ramsey and Lambert, they can help you win ball games. Balancing those things out is going to be the toughest part. But I anticipate Jacob Eason really being the starting quarterback before the middle of the season. When you look at the 10 wins by Georgia last year, they came against opponents with a combined record of 51 and 72 overall or 414 winning percentage. Those three losses to Alabama, Florida, and Tennessee, those teams had a 33-9 and overall record. So, obviously, they built a, a strong resume in 2015, 10-3 overall, but they did not come against quality opponents, and they're going to be challenged week number one by a solid team in North Carolina that played in the ACC championship game, 11-3 and overall, this is a team that lost three ball games all on neutral field sites. They lost to South Carolina week number one, 16 to 13 in Charlotte. They lost that ball game to Clemson in the ACC championship game. That game took place in Charlotte. And then they lost their bowl game to Baylor. When you look at this game overall, though, I think it's very clear that I think that North Carolina's offense can put some pressure on this Georgia defense. And it remains to be seen how much this Georgia defense will miss Leonard Floyd and Jordan Jenkins. But you look at this offense by North Carolina overall, Corey, prolific. I mean, this is a, they averaged over 40 points per game in 2015. They ran 224 yards on the ground, and they passed for 262 yards per game last year. They give up their big play quarterback, Marquise Williams. He moves on to the NFL. He accounted for 37 touchdowns. 24 through the air and 13 on the ground. But Mitch Trubisky, solid, solid quarterback. He completed 85% of his passes last year, 555 yards, six touchdowns, no interceptions. So he's game ready when you look at it. And he has two big play wide receivers in Matt Collins and Ryan Switzer. Those guys combined for 85 receptions, 1,442 yards, 10 touchdowns, you throw in Elijah Hood at the running back position. This guy averaged 6.3 yards for carry, 17 rushing touchdowns, 1,462 yards. This is a prolific offense. So Georgia's going to be cha- challenged defensively week number one. And if they're forced to get into a shootout, I mean, it's going to come from the quarterback position. You want a guy in there that's going to be okay under the pressure. I mean, uh, again, Lambert, Bryce Ramsey, or Jacob Eason, you might be very right in your prediction that Jacob Eason might get into this at game week number one. If he doesn't start, he might be in there in the second half because if it is a shootout, Georgia's going to have to play catch-up. And that's what that's what I really like about this week one matchup, Joe, because we're actually – the Bulldogs are going to be under a lot of pressure. This is a perfect storm for this quarterback controversy to really have to work itself out. You mentioned it already. That North Carolina offense is, is, is full of firepower. That's a well-oiled machine, 
and regardless of who's their quarterback, they've been producing points for the last three, four, five years at a very high clip. So this is going to be a situation where the defense for Georgia is going to really have to uh, play balls to the wall. They're going to have to really keep their offense in the game because North Carolina is going to come to score points, and they've been doing it at a high clip, as I've mentioned. So right now, uh, I think our defense is really looking at trying to keep us in the game because uh, I, <laughs> you can't say it any better, Joe. we got to score points, and I don't know if it's going to be Lambert. I don't know if it's going to be Ramsey. But if it's not, they're going to have to put Easton in the game to try to impact, you know, potentially affecting the deep ball, maybe scoring some points on the perimeter. This is going to be a unit that's going to have to come in prepared when I speak about the Georgia Bulldogs. So I think Coach Chaney is going to do what he can to get all three of these guys in the best shape possible. And I'm not speaking physically. I'm speaking mentally. They're going to have to be prepared to really take on the defense is going to come firing and on all cylinders when you look at what Carolina has in store. They've got athletes on the defensive side of the ball that are going to come after the quarterback position especially, and they're going to do their, their, their best on offense to control the clock and be explosive, especially when second down is up. Uh, North Carolina really, again, they lean on that bell cow that they have in Eli Hood, but their play-action game has always been some of the best in the conference when you look at ACC football. So, uh, it's a perfect storm, Joe, because I think it's going to force the Georgia Bulldogs to really come out of the shell and identify themselves early. We'll find out who the quarterback is, primarily because their offense is going to be forced to score points. And if Bryce Ramsey is struggling or uh, if Lambert is having trouble under center, then I look at Jacob Eason to at least have an opportunity to come into the game and throw the ball around a little bit because that North Carolina defense isn't going to be shy about keeping eight guys in the box George is known to run the ball. And right now you look at uh, a banged-up Nick Shell coming off a knee injury, you're still going to have to pre- prepare for that. You look at Tony Michelle, you're still going to have to prepare for that. So I think this is really, again, the perfect storm only because uh, North Carolina scores points, and if Georgia doesn't, that's going to cause controversy on the center. You mentioned that rushing attack by Georgia. They averaged 192 yards per game last year. Sony Michelle, 1,162 yards. He averaged over five yards per carry, eight touchdowns. Nick Chubb, 747 rushing yards. He averaged 8.3 yards per carry and added seven touchdowns on the ground. A dynamic duo, but it does depend on the health of Nick Chubb. How long will it take him to get back to 2015 form prior to the injury remains to be seen. But I can tell you this, they're going to be going up at least on paper against a suspect rushing defense in North Carolina. You look at North Carolina last year, they allowed 247 rushing yards per game on the road or on a neutral field site. It was 294 yards per game. You look at their three losses, they allowed 257 yards on the ground. Week number one last year to South Carolina, 319 to Clemson in the ACC championship game. And everybody knows 645, yes, 645 rushing yards to the Baylor Bears in their bowl loss. So the quarterbacks might not have to do anything as long as the offensive line is opening up running lanes week number one against this Tar Heel defense, Corey. (laughs) I'll tell you what, Joe, those numbers will excite anybody that plays offensive football and likes to run the ball. So the main thing that Georgia really has to lean on is the offensive rushing attack, obviously. We've got quarterbacks who – 
as we mentioned, their play is very much in question. We've got a defense that lost a lot of talent to the NFL and looks forward to playing on Sunday. And we got a completely new staff. So running the ball is always the biggest, uh, is always the best medicine uh, for any type of incident where you're facing a tough defense, especially one that's been historically as soft against the run, which is why I say North Carolina is going to do their best to pin the ears back and come after our quarterbacks because they want to make sure that these guys are ready to play. Uh, none of them have really proven uh, that they can play on a high level on a consistent basis. So this is really uh, North Carolina's time to shine and really try to re-identify themselves and get away from what they did in 2015 because those numbers you just rolled off, Joe, they continue to allow in excess of 180, 200 yards a game on the ground. You can't win ball games like that, especially against teams that really know how to play. And uh, they're going to face a team in the Georgia Bulldogs just really chomping at the bit also looking to identify themselves and, hey, whoever can run the ball best usually wins. You brought up great points in terms of what Georgia's going to have to do. It should be intriguing. We're going to break this game down a little bit later in greater detail as we inch closer to the season. It's just one of many top 20 battles that we're going to be talking about week number one of this college football season. Another game or, or aspect I want to bring up is I heard some reports that LSU entering the season is a preseason number two ranking, and I really can't put my arms around it. I love Les Miles. You know that. I love his type of coaching style. I love the way he coaches up his team and has his teams ready. Now, I know he's faltered sometimes in big ball games to Alabama. I get that, but he's a blue-collar type of guy. The one thing I cannot put my arms around is how they're getting this and where they're grasping that LSU is worthy of a number two ranking by anybody. I I, I, I just when you I understand they get Dave Aranda, the former Wisconsin defensive coordinator from Wisconsin. He comes to Baton Rouge now, and that's expected to help with its defense. He led that Wisconsin Badger defense last year. They only gave up 13 points per game. They were a top five rushing defense. They only allowed 95 yards per game. They only allowed 173 passing yards per game, and they only allowed seven passing touchdowns in terms of two teams opposing quarterbacks. I get that. But I look at this LSU team, and I think there's some, some things that they have to straighten out. Let's look on the defensive side of the ball. LSU last year allowed 24 points per game. That was their most since 2008. So, okay, that's a statistic that you, you're looking at eight years now down the road. That's the highest amount of points that they've given up. Okay, you look at how many yards per game they gave up on the ground. They gave up 122 rushing yards per game. Seems like a solid statistic, but they allowed 224 passing yards per game. That was their most since prior to 2008. You look at the three losses last year by LSU, Corey. They lost to Alabama. They lost to Arkansas. They lost to Ole Miss in consecutive games. They allowed 233 rushing yards per game to those three opponents and nine touchdowns on the ground. This was not the same LSU Tiger defense that we've seen in years past under John Chavis. So where are people getting this number two ranking? Where are they getting this from? Can you help me out here? <laughs> you know, it's going to be a little bit of a struggle, Joe, because you're right. I mean, LSU, they, they're they a strong team. 
The main reason you can put LSU as the second-rated team in the nation is if you look at their personnel because they recruit among the best every year. So when you line their guys up to a man, they don't have to take a back seat to anybody. At the same time, 90% of that talent is unproven. The only guy who we all know in the country is Leonard Fournette. So aside from him, you know, everything else still has to show up on Saturdays and prove itself, which isn't necessarily out of character for LSU. They've got great players. They've got a strong coaching staff, and they have a, a great formula for success. They've been there before, so they're not afraid of the limelight. The problem is I feel like somebody's just trying to outsmart the schedule. This is just somebody taking a guess or a couple of people just trying to take a guess at who might come out of the SEC West. The SEC West has been the toughest division for at least the last three, four, five seasons, and you can count on one team coming out of there. If you don't want to pick Alabama, your next pick is usually going to be LSU. Right now Texas A&M is struggling because uh, they they got a fire over there that they can't seem to put out when you consider the players and coaches and people transferring out. So they can't keep anybody on the center. Uh, you also look at Ole Miss. They've got a lot of guys that just got drafted, so they ha- they lost a lot of firepower. Both uh, both trenches lost top 15 talent guys. Uh, they lost a skilled player in Treadwell. They've lost a lot in the defensive secondary as well. And then when you travel down to Starkville, they've lost their, their guy who's been under center for the last four seasons. So uh, a, a, a sensible pick coming out of the West, if you just don't want to pick Alabama, is always going to be LSU because they can get there, Joe. They're always going to be at least three or four plays away from making it to the SEC championship and getting to the national championship because they have the schedule that will allow them to be there and they have the players that can turn it around. So number two is a high ranking. I can't justify number two unless you want to talk about how well they recruit. But what's going to be put on the field is so unproven, uh, aside from Leonard Fournette, that it's really just a shot in the dark to say that they're the second-best team in the country. When their quarterback play has been shaky, their defense has been inconsistent, and their passing game, as far as the perimeter players, haven't really had a chance to shine since the likes of an Odell Beckham or Jarvis Landry. So, Really, a lot of questions for LSU. The thing that you can count on, they're going to play hard. They're going to wear that white jersey, and Les Miles is going to be excited about it. So they've got a great formula for success, but it's it's impossible to predict them being the second-best team right now unless you just love Louisiana State that much. And I love LSU. You know that. I'm an SEC guy, so I, I make no bones about <laughs> it. I love SEC football. But, again, I love it all. I love LSU. I love Georgia. I love them all. I love the pageantry. But, again, I'll take it a step further. You look at LSU's production last year. They averaged 32 points per game, a very balanced rushing offense. They rushed for 257 rushing yards per game. They couldn't stretch defenses vertically. They only averaged around 179 passing yards per game. The inconsistency of Brandon Harris, he completed 53% of his passes, 13 touchdowns, six interceptions. Leonard Fournette carried that team, 1,953 rushing yards. He averaged 6.5 yards per carry, 22 rushing touchdowns. But then you take it a step further. You look at the three games that I mentioned that they lost, Alabama, Ole Miss, and Arkansas. They trailed at halftime in those ball games by a total score of 55 to 24. In those three games, they only averaged 99 rushing yards per game. And Leonard Fournette in those three games only averaged 76 yards on the ground. So you look at the three games that Brandon Harris performed those losses, three touchdowns, four INTs. So, again, 
this is not the same dominant offense or defense that we've seen. They're one-dimensional. Now, you saw what they were able to do in the bowl victory against Texas Tech. They lit it up. They play action on first and second down, and I believe that's the recipe for success in 2016 with Cam Cameron in terms of elevating Brandon Harris to the next level. You can pass on first and second down and loosen up opposing defenses. That'll open up the running lanes for Leonard Fournette. Be challenged by a blue-collar team in Wisconsin. Not to mention the game is played on a neutral field site in Lambeau Field. The Chiefs will be rocking, Corey. I tell you, Joe, this is really going to be a great opportunity for Brandon Harris because you've already mentioned they're going to be on the road, neutral environment, really a home field game for the Wisconsin Badgers when you consider they'll be playing at Lambeau Field. But Brandon Harris is going to have to separate himself. If LSU is to have any success, he is the real catalyst to this because converting on third down, again, is going to be the major key. Teams are going to continue to blitz him, and they're going to run blitz Leonard Fournette on first, second, and third down. The one thing you don't want LSU to do is to get that rushing game going downhill because once they get clicking and once that running back gets comfortable and starts to find lanes, there really is no slowing it down. And as you look at the stats from last year, 2015, the only way to beat LSU is to keep Leonard Fournette under 100 yards. So he, he, I think he put up, what you say, almost 70 yards, 76 yards per game in those three losses against Alabama, Arkansas, and Ole Miss. That's, again, another formula where teams continue to load the box against Brandon Harris and force him to try to beat them. So LSU's got a lot to prove, and specifically their quarterback, Brandon Harris, is going to have to step up because he's going to have to move those chains without leaning on Leonard Fournette. Everyone in the country understands Fournette's going to get his 20 carries a game, but you've got to be able to play off of that because otherwise we'll load that box up in the the Southeastern Conference and, and they'll do their best to shut it down. So, I think LSU has an opportunity. I think they have the – they obviously – they always have the playmakers on the team, on the roster, but who's going to get them the ball and are they going to be in the right position? We'll find out early when you look at what they face against Wisconsin. This is a team, uh, almost a mirror image, a team built on running the ball in the Big Ten and at the same time playing tough defense. And really that's the kind of road game. That's the kind of game that, that travels very well. So I look for this to be a bloody matchup at Lambeau Field. Not uh, not any different from any other matchup at Lambeau Field. So I, a lot of pro players uh, banging heads, and I think LSU is going to really have to work hard because they're going to be very familiar when they line up against Wisconsin, another team that likes to run the ball, pounds it between the tackles, and plays tough defense. A great matchup to start the year off. When you look at the top ten preseason, this is through ESPN. I mean, I'm going to just throw names out there teams, and I want to know where you have these, all right? Top five right now. Alabama, Clemson, you have Michigan, Florida State, and Oklahoma. Do you have the same order, or do you have something a little different? I'll tell you what. For me, I have Florida State and Clemson above Alabama and Michigan, that's just me. I think that they're a more complete team week number one coming into the season. Now, will they be there at the end? I don't know. But Alabama, Clemson, Michigan, Florida State, and Oklahoma, for me, I have Florida State and Clemson as the clear two top teams for me. I want to get your your thoughts about it. If you have it a little different, I know you're an SEC guy, but 
Do you still think <laughs> Alabama, with the losses that they've had, still number one? Well, I don't have Alabama preseason number one. I think they lost a little bit too much. And even though they continue to win national championship with a new quarterback, the guy still has to prove it to me. He still has to prove it in the fall on the field. So right now they're my fourth-ranked team. I'll start from the top. I've got Clemson right back in the driver's seat. I've got them in the catbird seat looking to take on all comers. Uh, Whenever you've got a Deshaun Watson, uh, that offsets everything else any team can present. He can score with anybody against any type of defense. And that really will continue to put pressure on anybody facing Clemson because they have no shortage of talent, not just on the offensive side of the ball, but their defense continues to remain loaded, primarily behind all of that good recruiting that Coach Dabo Swinney does. The second-rated team I have is Oklahoma. I think Oklahoma's ready. I think Oklahoma is going to make a statement. I think they're looking to make the statement that they're back. I think everyone would like to see Oklahoma compete on a high level, especially Oklahoma Sooner fans. So I think they learned a lot about themselves last year. Baker Mayfield's coming back to really try to inject some enthusiasm back into that, that university, into that program, and put them to the forefront of the discussion in their league. And I think he's really – he's got some victories under his belt, and his confidence is really riding extremely high. He's a, a preseason favorite for, you know, Heisman Trophy contention. So I think Oklahoma's in a strong position. Uh, to to really solidify that ranking, I have them as my second-rated team going into the season. The third-rated team is Florida State, and that's just a talent pool. That's just a team where you can go and pick a guy off the field and close your eyes, and he'll probably end up playing on Sundays. So that Florida State team right now is just no different. Uh, Coach Fisher's got everything lined up. The quarterback uh, situation seems to be taking shape. That defense is always going to have eight guys ready to play on Sunday and three guys looking to take their turn next. So, I think Florida State, just off sheer talent and experience, uh, they always play in big games. So those those young men are accustomed to the stage, and they don't they never fold. So it's going to be an opportunity again for Florida State. I've got them as the third ranked team again. Alabama is my number four, just coming back with the firepower that they do have, and the, the head coach hasn't changed. So you got to recognize what they bring to the table. And I and I sneak Michigan in at the five spot. As much as I hate Michigan and what Coach Harbaugh does as far as agitating everyone else around the country. you got to take your hat off to what he does to that team on the field because that's all that really matters. Uh, Michigan's playing a better brand of football. He's recruiting high-caliber athletes, and he really has everyone believing in the program and the direction. And there's nothing like everyone drinking the same Kool-Aid to get things going the right way. So uh, Harbaugh's got things rolling. The teams believe that they can win and compete against anybody, uh, showing how they uh, played last year. That was a good testament to that. So, Really, my top five are getting Clemson, Oklahoma, Florida State, Alabama, and Michigan taking up that top five. You mentioned Michigan with Jim Harbaugh. He's pissing off a lot of people, and those in particular in the state of New Jersey, Corey. I don't know if you're aware of the situation, but obviously the satellite camps and all that. Well, he is holding a camp now in Paramus, New Jersey, uh, for the state of New Jersey. So a lot of the big kids now, for those that don't know, for those that don't know uh, New Jersey football, you should know because Jabril Peppers, a standout defensive back for Michigan last year, uh, did go to Paramus Catholic. Now, they did get the number one ranked defensive tackle in the country, Rashad Gary, from Paramus Catholic as well. That was Jabril Peppers' teammate in college. But there's an underlying story there, and I'm going to tell you the story right now, was Partridge was the former uh, 
coached for Paramus Catholic, and he was up for the job director of player personnel and recruiting for Rutgers under Kyle Flood. Well, what happened was a lot of the coaches in New Jersey did not, like high school coaches, did not have that great of a relationship with Chris Partridge. So Rutgers did not offer him the job. It was thought that he was going to get the job last year. He did not get it. He he gave up his head coaching job at Paramus Catholic. Well, what happened was he took the same position with Jim Harbaugh in Ann Arbor. Okay? So now with the satellite camps, they go back <laughs> to Paramus Catholic, okay, and open up a New Jersey 7-on-7 camp. And this is on the, the, the day, June 8th, Wednesday, and Chris Ashnell, former Ohio State assistant under Urban Meyer, says, screw that, we're running our own camp, and we're going to do it at Fairleigh Dickinson, and we're going to, you know, we're the state school, we're Jersey, we're going to do it on the same thing. So now, if you're not aware, there's five big, big high schools in terms of the parochial high school pool. Rashad Gary and Jabril Peppers went to Paramus Catholic. On top of Paramus Catholic, you have schools like my old alma mater, state champion Don Bosco Prep, Bergen Catholic. Yep. You have St. Peter's Prep, which is out in Jersey City. And you have St. Joe's of Montvale, which is in Montvale, New Jersey. So those five schools are the big five in Bergen County for the most part. They run the state in terms of high school football. Well, what happens after Chris Ash decides to run, you know, the, the school now? Greg Toll, the head coach at Don Bosco Prep, says, I have a relationship with Urban Meyer. I sent two of my guys to Ohio State and Florida. Wow. Guess what? I support my guys to go to Chris Ash's camp. We love what he's doing over there. He's the state school. Our guys were encouraging to go to Rutgers camp. Coach Champanelli from Bergen Catholic, who was a former offensive coordinator for Coach Toll at Bergen Catholic, said, hey, I feel the same way, not really fond of what they're doing over with Coach Partridge and Jim Harbaugh at Paramus Catholic. So now you have the whole state of New Jersey and the Big Five up in arms now over where their kids are going to go for this seven-on-seven camp and tournament on June 8th. Summer split. So now, now on top of it, here's, here's another thing now. So Coach Harbaugh brings in coaches from Boston College. He brings in coaches from Maryland, other Big Ten coaches. So Chris Ayers says, you know what? If you're going to do that, I'll bring in Coach Ciano, the former Rutgers coach, who's now on Coach, coach Urban Meyer's staff from Ohio State. So now basically what you have now is still an Ohio State-Michigan war going on, but it's through in New, State Jersey. In New Jersey with Coach Chris <laughs> at Rutgers. Is that not incredible? I tell it's you incredible. what, that I'm is Unreal. <laughs> Unreal when you think about it. You had Coach Toll, Coach Hanson, and Coach Campanelli all support Rutgers and head coach Chris Ash. We love what he's doing. So they can't stand Harbaugh now because of what he did with Coach Partridge. And more importantly, now he's coming back to the state of New Jersey and running his own satellite camp here at the 7-on-7 in Paramus, New Jersey on June 8th. Incredible, right? Classy guy. I tell you what, that hardball pulls no punches. 
I can see him pulling that move to get Coach Partridge over there just to keep that Paramount Catholic relationship so that he can agitate everybody else in Burgess County because he's really doing everything he can to get whatever recruits he can get up to Ann Arbor. He he obviously, uh, I don't want to say he has no tact, but at the same time, he, he is not the least bit concerned with how anyone else feels he wants Michigan back in the forefront of everyone's mind, and that's going to that's gonna shake trees up everywhere across this country. I cannot believe he's doing that in your home state of New Jersey, Joe. You guys got to fix that out. He's, he's already drawing lines up there that you guys didn't even have. It's incredible. It was in the paper today. I know all four head coaches, I mean all five of them, great guys, and they're intense individuals, Corey. I mean, you know, when you talk about high school football in the state of New Jersey, I mean, it, it is intense, especially parochial. I mean, it doesn't get it's, – it's basically college. I'll, I'll say it. I mean, it, it is. I mean, when I went to Don Bosco Prep years ago, I mean, Squishy was 2,500, and it was because I lived in the, the town of Ramsey. It's up to 12,000, 14,000 for high school. For high school. I mean, it's incredible when you think about high school athletics today. It's unreal. But I just wanted to bring that up. I mean, this is, what, this is what, when we talk about the great sport of football, though, this is what it is. This is what it's about. This is, it's such a big revenue driver now on multiple <laughs> levels. I mean, television, Internet, you know, products. You have camps, seven-on-seven, seven, recruiting. I mean, it, it, there's so many ways to profit off of the game of football at the the collegiate and the high school level. It's incredible when you think about it because companies are making a fortune off of it because it's a year-round business, and it's no longer, well, you know what? The season ends in in January. We'll take five months off, and we'll see you in August. No way, baby. We're getting right back to it February, March, and, you know, we just keep going on. It's, It's incredible. It is incredible, Joe. I mean, I just listen to the, the landscape and, and check out the atmosphere around the high school scene. And if I'm not mistaken, Joe, right now there's a high school, there are two high schools in Texas that have put bids up in the community, and they're going to get stadiums ranging in the neighborhood of $60 million in cost. I mean, these, these are high schools, Joe, but when you mention what the kids are paying to go to these schools, that does sound more like, a small college or university system, uh, a lot of money being uh, placed in and out of these systems, a lot of money being earned uh, on these uh, programs, and a lot of money being generated through these programs. So it's really an, uh, an interesting time. You don't want to say money's driving the boat, but at the same time you got to have some to compete, especially on the high level, whether it be high school or college ball. Exciting to say the least. Incredible. I, I want to give a word out to our sponsors, Corey, Six Shades. These shades, it's summertime. Great sunglasses by Eddie Bauer, Jr. Check them out at sick, S-I-K-K, shades.com. Enter promo code Go for the 2 Get $20 off your, your order today. These are great sunglasses. I wear them, especially now that summer's here. Great styles. Check it out. That's sick, S-I-K-K shades.com also i was rocking a great shirt this weekend it was mother's day anton alexander Corey. i'm telling you this guy makes great shirts anton alexander.com you could design exactly. your own custom made shirt i'm going to send you one i'm telling you great shirts they're made in the states in the united states check it out at anton alexander.com 
Corey, this is what it's all about, though. I mean, we're really touching on a lot of topics. I could talk college football 24-7. We're just touching the surface. Next week, we're going to break down some other games. We're going to look at another intriguing battle. Two others that we failed to mention were UCLA and Texas A&M. Houston and Oklahoma, week number one. I mean, when you think about both of those matchups, just off the top of your head, I mean, these are great matchups for a college football fan. These matchups spell firepower. It seems like both both of these games are really going to put us in a position to find out who's ready to score some points. That's the main thing I like about the early gate. Uh, teams are really trying to put it in the end zone. And you look at UCLA, you look at Houston, Oklahoma, uh, we've got some matches where these guys are going to be tossing that ball around. That's one thing I really enjoy, throwing and catching, put it in the end zone. And when you look at Oklahoma, I mean, the one thing has been they've failed to step up in big ball games. I know they beat Taylor last year. They stepped up in, in ball games that they had to. But then when their season was on the line, a, a marquee game against Clemson, they did not show up defensively. And you, when you break it down statistically, I'll have those statistics for next week. But – Clearly, Oklahoma could not shut down the run and could not run the football. I'll throw them out right now. You look at their offensive production in 2015, this was an offense that averaged 42 points per game into the 2015 season. In both of those losses last year to Clemson and Texas, they averaged 17 points per game. Okay, wow. 25 points less than their season average. You want to go even further? They only rushed Corey for 67 yards per game in both games. The victory against Texas, uh, the, the loss to Texas, and the loss to Clemson, identical. 67 rushing yards per game. Okay? How about a step further? Uh-huh. Defensively, in both of those games, the loss to Texas and Clemson, they allowed 212 rushing yards on the ground. Can you imagine that? Identical. They lost by – they only averaged 17 points in both victories, of, of both losses, to Clemson and Texas. They only rushed for 67 yards identical in both of those losses, and the defense gave up 212 rushing yards per game in both Texas and Clemson losses. Can you imagine that when you think about it? It's unreal. They're going to need to step up against a high-octane offense in Houston. We'll see if they can do it. That's what we're going to be touching on next week. We're just touching the surface. Stay with us all season long. We are just getting started. This is what it's all about. For Corey Allen, I'm Joe Lisi. Stay with us each and every week at GoForTheTwo.com. Have a great weekend, everyone. Go dogs.